Thanks very much, Gideon, and, and, and thanks to the James Martin Centre for allowing me the opportunity to uh, address you today. Um, I thought I'd start with this image, and of course it's one that is often linked into any sort of presentation on uh, climate change. But this one has special significance, I think, because it really is almost all ocean. And of course, when you ask the astrobiologists and so on about you know, how many planets are like this, it's a vanishingly small probability that we're going to ever find a planet covered in liquid water. Now, and of course, this ocean is incredibly important to the planet uh, in things like the absorption of heat, almost 85% of the extra heat coming in as a result of things like the green, enhanced greenhouse effect is disappearing into the ocean. And if you think about carbon dioxide, it's something like 30 to 40% of, of those extra you know, additions to the atmosphere are sinking into the ocean. So it's got this enormous value to us. But one of the images that I uh, think explains even more is this one here. And this one is provided by Gene Feldman, who is the head of the Color Oceanography Group at NASA, at the Goddard Institute for Space. And it's 10 years of satellite data, seawith satellite data, of chlorophyll. So it's seen through the eyes of chlorophyll. And what it shows you is how dynamic and connected our planet is. So each of those sort of sudden intensifications are, a, are sort of a, a, an event where nutrients have probably moved into the upper layers of the ocean. You've had a burst of productivity. Fisheries have uh, uh, been fed off that sort of energy and, of course, benefits to humans. And that goes, of course, for land as well. That really what we're looking at is the way our planet works. Now, Gene was quite, um, quite nice in that he made this particular one for Australians so that it didn't simply focus on the Americas. And so in a minute you'll see uh, my tiny island. And of course, it's fascinating to see this sort of, you know, the, the way when you have the wet season, the, the land is replenished and so on, and then of course these dry seasons and so on. Well, unfortunately, given, it, given the fact it's so dynamic, you think, well, it's got a, a certain robustness. And of course, there's an increasing amount of evidence that we're now starting to change some fundamental properties. And in fact, if you uh, listen to some, and so here we have Australia coming into uh, view here, this dead dry centre every so often will just suddenly go green as you get sort of water flowing uh, into that, that region. You get some of the largest wetland swamps in the world, but they only last for that several months before they then disappear. So if you ask some, uh, and this is from James Hansen, who is the head of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, there's this impression that we are on the precipice of climate tipping points beyond which there is no redemption. And these are incredibly strong words, of course. Now, we'll, so, so how real is that? And how will this affect our ocean? And that's really what I'm going to focus on today. I want to talk about the physical and chemical changes that are occurring in the ocean, we just published a, a, a review in science on this to sort of try and pull it all together. Um, and then to talk about what those changes mean in terms of the biological consequences. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the general patterns. And there are some sort of general themes in the ocean as far as how uh, rapid changes to, uh, to temperature and, and acidity are, are changing ocean ecosystems. And then I'm going to uh, focus in on my favourite system, which is coral reefs. I've worked over the last uh, 30 years on coral reefs and uh, I think they're far nicer than going into the deep ocean where I think the weather's pretty rough and so on. I mean, I think uh, you know, doing research on a coral reef sounds very sensible. Um, 
And then I'm going to sort of come back to this. Are we at a point where um, are we at a point of no return? Because that's really what James Hansen is telling us, that we're at a, at a point if we don't pull out of the trajectory we're on, we're going to then go into uh, a very different system. And of course, this gets us to the issue of when does change become dangerous? Because we're very adaptable. And we've gone from some big changes in the past. Uh, surely we can uh, sneak through. This will get me onto the issue of full 50 parts per million, uh, which is now pretty much accepted as a guardrail beyond which we can't go if we want to live on this planet uh, with the same sort of uh, abundance and, and lifestyle. And then I'll get to this issue of the, you know, whether achieving that is physically, technically or politically possible. And of course that'll get me to uh, answer the question in the title. Well, this is uh, really hot off the press. It's uh, an article uh, coming out of Hansen's lab um, which is really the latest uh, temperature data for um, uh, the surface. And so what you see here is uh, the temperature anomaly. I think people are familiar with this and you've got uh, different uh, um, ways of, of, of measuring that and collating the data. And you see uh, overall we've got an upward march. And of course this uh, temperature change um, has been quite controversial recently because people have isolated the last little bit there and said, look, over the last 10 years, there hasn't been any change. But that really isn't the way you should look at this. You've got to look at the whole temperature series. Another way to look at this is to look at the patterns of warming. And uh, as you remember from the last uh, northern hemisphere winter, London was very cold, Washington was very cold, uh, and people were saying that uh, there wasn't any such thing as climate change. And of course, that was rather ridiculous because when you look back at the you know, at that year, you had um, really the hottest year uh, on record uh, over the past um, 12 months. So it's the, the total. And, and of course, this uh, image here that was going there was just showing you the, the last um, uh, several decades of data, which essentially show that the anomaly, which is getting more and more red, uh, is growing across the planet. So there's no doubt in those people that make the measurements, people on the ground and so on, that we're seeing some very fundamental changes. Of note, of course, is that two-thirds of the warming has occurred since 1975. As I've said, the last 12 months were the hottest in terms of the instrumental record. That's going back to the sort of mid-1800s. And that this rate of change is accelerating, that the last decade saw as much change as happened in the two previous decades. So when you take all of that, you've got some major changes. And of course, the ocean, if you look at that, uh, is a little bit behind the land, but is changing uh, in the same direction. You're getting uh, a, a larger number of anomalies and so on. And of course, the great integrator of those changes is ice. And I think this graph, which uh, uh, came out of the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology, which is comparing the observed sea ice extent in the summer in the Arctic with the predictions, the worst case predictions of the IPCC going to the end of the century and the best case, the news was that the fourth assessment report, which essentially uh, came up with those predictions, uh, got it horribly wrong. They underestimated the rate of change that we're now seeing. And the latest sea ice extent uh, is even lower and it looks like that before 2050 we'll have a completely ice-free uh, Arctic in the summer. Because that's great for shipping, it's interesting in terms of the geopolitical arrangements because Canada then actually has an ice-free sea between itself and Russia and so on. So it's 
major changes going on. But from a point of view of changes in the ocean, ice is a great integrator. It, you know, when you have warm water, ice melts. Uh, when things are cooler, ice will then accumulate again. Well, the other big change that's going on that will be relevant to various parts of, of this presentation is that of ocean acidification. And this is a separate effect of CO2 uh, on the ocean. So basically, as the CO2 pressure above the ocean has increased, an increasing amount has gone into the ocean, CO2 likes to react with water, uh, creates a weak acid, and that weak acid likes to then interact with things like carbonate ions. And carbonate ions turn out to be very important for things that make calcium carbonate and build skeletons, like corals. There are little plants in the, in the ocean called coccolithophores and so on. And overall, um, as you increase the partial pressure of CO2, things like that carbonate ion concentration uh, decrease. So there's really two separate effects here. Increasingly acidic conditions, which has, it own, has its own impact, and this decrease in carbonate ions. Now, um, the um, chemistry and physics behind this is fairly straightforward, so you can actually probably calculate quite accurately what's going on. The most important thing, of course, is that we're now seeing um, data, and this is from Scott Doney's paper, um, showing in red, you've got the CO2 signal in the atmosphere, um, you've got the uh, CO2 pressure uh, within um, seawater, you've got the uh, pH going down as it's becoming more acidic, and of course, for two very important uh, crystals um, of calcium carbonate, you've got, uh, in this case, the aragonite saturation state. Corals put down aragonite, and this is essentially uh, tells you how easy or hard it is to precipitate calcium carbonate in that form. And the same goes with calcite. So you've got not only really good theoretical data, you've got the predictions in matching uh, those changes. Now, if you take what's happened and what you see in the ocean today, the message is that we're already starting to approach conditions that we haven't seen for very long periods of time. So CO2 is now 100 parts uh, per million above where it, the, the maximum amount it's been over the past million years at least. And of course, when you then take, and these are essentially the full range of values for today, and then you look at estimates of pH in the ocean in the past, that those two lines there are two separate series from tiny organisms that put down uh, calcium carbonate. You can get back to an understanding of, of pH from those. If you look at that, you see that we're starting to get to conditions which um, will soon approach conditions that haven't been seen for 20 million years. Now, that's a different chemistry in the ocean. And of course, the big question, we'll get to that in a minute, is does that really matter? A tiny change in pH. Well, firstly, you know that the pH scale is ex ex exponential, and of course, that's really quite a large drop in uh, the amount of protons that are in, in solution and so on. If we continue on our track with CO2 rising to 600 to 1,000 parts per million, we start to get to conditions which really take us beyond anything that we've experienced for the last 40 million years. So again, I'm setting up to say, well, does this really matter? Because if you look at all the other things going on, we're getting some you know, very different circumstances. So this is from a science paper published a couple of months ago in which we drew all this stuff together. Uh, up the top there, you see the sort of uh, rate of, of uh, sea level rise from satellite altimetry. You've got the sort of mean rate there. 
Uh, it's going along at about three millimeters per year on average. Depends on where you are because if you're in the Western Pacific, it's a lot higher. In some places, it's a lot lower. But the important thing is that that rate of, uh, of sea level change is accelerating. And so that's when you then go and look at those sort of uh, figures and you start to say what sort of sea level rise we'll have at the end of the century, we'll have, uh, according to people like Stefan Ramsdorf, uh, up to two metres by the end of the century. Now, even half a metre is a real showstopper in terms of coastal um, environments and people and infrastructure and so on. Um, there's good evidence now that short duration storms are increasing in frequency and we've also talked about ice volume. So there are all sorts of changes going on and the big question is, does it really matter? You know, a little bit of change, we get a lot of inter-annual, inter you know, intra-annual variability between seasons and so on. Does it really matter if it's a bit hotter and a little bit more acidic and, and a little bit more water on the planet? Well, the first thing when and this was part of the science paper, was to go in and, and have a look at the literature. And the first obstacle to really understanding where the change is happening in the ocean is uh, how little we know about the ocean. And so we did a literature survey, and this just simply shows uh, when you search in the Thomson Reuters um, ISI index and you look for climate papers and you attach marine or terrestrial to those searches, you find that there's uh, basically 20 times more papers on terrestrial changes as there are on marine ones. So why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, the ocean is a difficult place to go and study. Um, whereas in places like Oxford, I'm sure you've had, uh, you know, um, people that have been studying butterflies and birds for hundreds of years and getting really precise records. People have only been going in the ocean really on a regular basis for the last 50 years. So you've, you've got this obstacle to this. We still sort of ploughed ahead and, um, and took a look at, you know, what that literature was telling us. Uh, was it telling us that all systems were sort of changing in a random way and there was nothing to worry about or was there a, a, a direction? Now in the science format, there's no way you can sort of march through the filer or march through the different environments. So we decided to look for sort of key themes. And these three themes, these three, uh, themes uh, fell out. Um, and this is up in the supporting online material here that if you look at things like migrating species, there's a lot of evidence that things are moving towards the poles. Things are traveling with, with uh, temperature. Um, the second is that there is very strong evidence that there's fundamental changes to the way ecosystems work. This is incredibly vast, and one of those which I'll get to involves uh, you know, the oxygen we breathe and, and in fact, uh, a lot of the food we get from the ocean. The third uh, theme we found was the loss of habitat-forming species. These are species like corals, mangroves and so on that uh, structure essentially the habitat in which um, thousands, if not millions of species live. So those are the three themes of what I'm going to just march through very quickly to give you a bit of a sort of a, a snapshot of the things that are going on in the ocean. And then we'll move on to uh, coral reefs. Well, migrating species, um, this is just one of those uh, stu studies and it's, it's relevant to this region. It's uh, long-term plankton studies uh, by Gregory uh, Beaugrand. And uh, what's very clear from uh, things like the continuous plank uh, plankton recorder studies 
is that there is a definite change in the communities that are found along the coastline of, of Britain and Northern Europe. And what they're seeing is that if you classify these into um, warm, uh, warm uh, um, species assemblages, those are definitely moving northward. And in the northward location, you're starting to lose the cold adapted assemblages. So there's, there's clearly this move um, which is being found in other parts of the world of species moving. And of course it's not just all plankton. I should say that um, when you look at those sort of shifts, they uh, in relationship to um, uh, different climate indices and sea temperature, there's a lot of phasing with them. So when you've got a shift in the community, you've got a shift in the sea temperature or, or another climate variable. So it all makes sense in terms of uh, the idea that, that things are marching in a poleward direction. Now some of these changes can um, have dramatic impacts on the ecosystem in which they arrive. And this is just one example, it's one from Australia that I know quite well. And um, if you're looking at Australia, uh, you've got Tasmania down here. And um, the South Pacific gyre is a big body of water uh, which essentially jets warm water down that coastline. And so what's happened over the past sort of uh, you know, 40 years is that the East Australian current has been getting further and further uh, southward. And what it's done is it's brought in that uh, sea urchin on the right-hand side, Centrostephanus rogersori. And essentially what's happened is that uh, the Tasmanian uh, ecosystems have gone from being dominated by kelp plants with very few sort of open areas to now having what are called barrens, which are well known on the Australian, uh, uh, the, the, the Australian coastline where uh, Centrostephanus rogersori is normally found. And um, these things are now pop popping up in Tasmania. Now the knock-on effect of that is that the fish that live in kelp and, and, and depend on that have, have now sort of changed and dis disappeared. And you're having a sort of a series of domino or knock-on effects uh, from the simple arrival of a single species uh, in this case in a, in a poleward direction towards the south. What about this issue of, of uh, changing ecosystem function? This is going back to the picture of chlorophyll on our planet. And uh, if you look at this and you look at the ocean, um, you see a lot of chlorophyll, especially in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. And that oxygen is actually responsible for, um, uh, sorry, that, that chlorophyll is, is responsible for 50% of the primary productivity of the earth. So all that green stuff, all those plants and so on, uh, fixing carbon, releasing oxygen, and the organic carbon is going into food chains that ultimately end up in fish stocks and so on that, you know, of course benefit humans. Um, and the important bit of this is that uh, it's not only the chlorophyll that's there that you're looking at, you're looking at a huge assembly of other organisms that are really important for life on this planet. Now, um, in the heart of each of those big currents, the gyres that go in the north and south parts of the, of the ocean, of the hemispheres, you've got areas where there is very, very little chlorophyll. And these are referred to as nutrient deserts. They're very, areas with very, very low nutrients. And so you don't get much sort of plant productivity. And so those areas uh, have been sort of observed. And they're very easily measured because uh, when you're looking at a satellite, the, the signal that comes from chlorophyll is very reliable. So you can actually then measure the size of these things. Now I should say that these are driven by the stratification of the ocean. And so 
Um, when you go to those areas of the world, they're very stable parts of the water column. And essentially what you've got is a mixed layer, which is sort of, you know, hundreds of metres deep. And then below that, you've got the deep ocean. And what happens in a stratified water column is that nutrients get fixed up. Uh, the, the phytoplankton traps sunlight. They fix nutrients like phosphorus and, and, and nitrogen. And then over time, they'll eventually sink either as part of you know, dead zooplankton that ate the phytoplankton or as phytoplankton themselves out of that photic layer. And that drags nutrients out of that. And that's why you have those nutrient deserts in the middle of the ocean. Now the news is that those nutrient deserts are now increasing in size. And there was a paper by Polovina uh, in 2008 where they simply measured the size from these satellite measurements which go back uh, several decades. And they looked at how they were changing. And what essentially they found is that uh, these areas have increased by 6.6 .6 million square kilometres, or 15% over, um, uh, over the past decade. So we've got this huge expansion. You say, well, why, why would that uh, have anything to do with, with climate change? And of course, the, the suspicion is that because we're pumping more heat into the ocean, we're getting um, greater stability of water columns, so we're getting more nutrients coming out of the water columns, so we're having this, this, uh, this state of the ocean expand. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it's nothing I said, was it? <coughs> Australians are so rude, aren't we? <laughs> um, so this particular study's been uh, followed by another one um, which goes back even further, and this is by Boyce et al in which they've gone back and used SECI disk data. And to those that are not oceanographers, SECI disks are a way where you have a, a long string and you have an object, black and white disk, uh, and you have a way of measuring the clarity of the water column and that correlates quite well with you know, the amount of, of, um, of phytoplankton in the ocean when you're away from coastal areas where it might also be due to sort of uh, um, sediments. And what they did then was to go in and after stratifying um, uh, the, the world into various uh, different oceans, they're able to uh, observe in, in the data sets the satellite uh, chlorophyll measurements and then the Secchi disk going back to the uh, turn of the century, last century, um, to see that in eight of the ten oceans there's been a significant decrease in the amount of chlorophyll uh, in the upper layers of the ocean. And in addition to that, uh, that decline is about 1% of the global median per year. Now, I have to remind you that that big picture of the ocean with 50% of the productivity, 50% of the oxygen, that uh, is of concern. Because you're essentially changing something on such a vast scale. Now, the, um, if you're not scared enough, um, I now move on to the loss of... Uh, habitats forming species and, and processes. Now, um, as I've said, uh, things like coral reefs, mangroves, and kelp forests have a particular set of organisms that, that build the, the habitat in which a whole range of other species live. So if you take coral reefs, you've got reef-building corals and calcareous algae that stick together a three-dimensional framework into which you've got uh, literally million, a million species living. And of course it's the most diverse ecosystem on the planet. Similarly with mangroves, similarly with kelp forests. And of course associated with uh, the formation of ice um, in the Arctic, you've got a similar situation where a process defines an ecosystem. 
And in all cases, when you look at these, there are dramatic declines. Uh, there's declines in coral reefs of about 1% to 2%. I'll talk about that. There's declines in, in uh, mangrove forests, kelp forests, and of course we've talked about the ice. So we've, we've got major changes going on in the ocean just simply because we're losing organisms and processes that uh, drive change. Now, all right, so um, I want to now turn to my favourite subject, and if we can turn... <laughs> Don't let me touch any buttons. And, and this is really just to remind us about what coral reefs are, and this huge thing that can be seen from space. As I've said, um, this is reefs off Indonesia about two months ago. Um, you see the dominance of corals, this rich, you know, um, associated fauna and flora. And of course, in amongst this is the message that there are huge pelagic species that come by these areas of high productivity. And of course, out of that, an estimated 500 million people are benefiting. So one in, you know, sort of 10 people are fishing in coastal areas or they're deriving income from tourism and so on. So these things are really important. And of course, uh, that's uh, impressive given that coral reefs only cover about 0.1% of the planet's surface. Thanks. Well, you know, just to give you a bit of background about these things, about coral reefs, they're, they're rather magical because uh, they are growing in um, very, very clear water as well. And they somehow defy the nutrient desert. And they do this uh, through a symbiosis with a brown dinoflagellate, which is a tiny plant-like organism which lives in the tissues. And as a result of that, um, photosynthesizes like plants do and gives away uh, the benefits of that symbiosis to, to the uh, to the host, allowing corals um, to essentially beat the odds in terms of, of being able to be productive um, in otherwise uh, nutrient poor conditions. Now this symbiosis highly evolved. Uh, this is work done by one of my students where if you take genetic markers for the host and you take genetic markers for the symbiont, they're highly clustered across um, environments and so on. And, and each coral tends to have its own particular species of symbiodinium. Now that symbiodinium might be found in some other host species, but if you look at this, and this is just a family tree of different varieties of symbiodinium, you'll find that, for example, Palithoa zoanthid, in this case from uh, one tree, uh, Heron Island on the Great Barrier Reef, um, has something called C24, which is probably a species of, of dinoflagellate. So it's a highly evolved symbiosis. And uh, they, these cells sit inside the tissues of the host, as I've said, uh, beating essentially the immune system of the host in a, in a very clever way. Uh, and they sit there and um, while they photosynthesize and produce energy for the host, they also get the benefit of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus produced by normal animal metabolism. So it's a lovely tight, it's a bit like a cactus living, you know, where you've got water recycling within a cactus, within a desert. This is essentially um, the nutrient equivalent of that, where you've got the internal recycling of nutrients which then allow this uh, um, association to live within um, uh, nutrient-poor tropical seas. And as a result, of course, they're able to build up this rich community, which is one of the few large ecosystems you can see from space. Right, so this is... Uh... Now, despite their importance, corals actually are um, only going to be here for the next 30 or 40 years if we continue on the current trajectory. And this has really come home in surveys like this one done by John Bruno and Liz Selleck, 
where if you go back to studies reporting coral cover, a measure of abundance, very simply measured, uh, and then you ask how that's changed over time, you find that in almost every area, including the Great Barrier Reef, there's a shift uh, downwards in, in coral cover. And the conclusion, and this goes for a lot of other sites, the Philippines, mainland Asia, and so on, the conclusion is that we, are, we have lost already probably 40%, uh, 40 to 50% of the sort of rich coral that used to be on coral reefs over the past sort of 40 years. Now, the other implication of this, if this process hasn't stopped, is that we are now losing coral at the rate of 1% to 2% per year. So we don't have to be mathematical geniuses to realise that they won't last until 2050, right? We will lose most of it just simply on that rate. Of course, what's causing this decline, and um, there are really two uh, major reasons. Um, coastal areas in the tropics often have very large human populations. Those human populations uh, require uh, protein, and of course, fish stocks have, have plummeted uh, dramatically. And those fish stocks, of course, are important in terms of reef function and so on, and so you've had the collapse of reef systems for that reason. The other one, of course, is that coastal development, be that agriculture or the removal of trees or the growth of cities, has destroyed the quality of water along coastlines, and that's had a, a, a separate effect. But over the last 10 years, it's become very clear that climate change is now starting to impact corals, probably at a scale and intensity much greater than those first two threats. They're all bad, but this climate one is one which I think is growing very much in scale. And this is really one of the first, um, you know, um, the first things we noticed uh, back in the early 1980s when corals suddenly went white. And this is a picture of a bleaching event. And these things started in 1979, are not known before 1979, and involve coral essentially losing that symbiosis. So little brown plants get spat out and so on. The ability to trap sunlight and so on disappears. And what you're left there is a very vulnerable organism, which if it's, um, and, th and this case is one on the Great Barrier Reef in 2006, uh, essentially it took a two degree increase in sea temperature over four to six weeks for this to happen. So it's not a very big change. It's not what you'd call a heat wave on land. It's a subtle change in temperature and you get this uh, situation occurring. And what happens to the coral afterwards is that it either can recover its symbiosis if the conditions return uh, to normal sooner and, and it hasn't been as, as warm, uh, or it dies or gets diseased and dies. And so what we've seen um, when you uh, look at, say, a global event like the one that happened in 1998. And this particular event was a very warm year in which literally uh, every reef in the world bleached. You saw a huge loss of corals. Now, in the years before uh, this event, they had started to monitor coral cover, that measure of coral abundance, and try to get a measure of how it was changing. And during that one year, the average global loss of coral was 16%. But that hid the fact that Australia didn't get hit too badly. It was like 5 to 10%. The Western Indian Ocean, which is this huge area here, um, very important part of the way those ecosystems work and societies and so on, lost 46% of the corals in one year. So you're not going to think what that would be like uh, in the terrestrial equivalent, right? If you were told that last year, 46% of the forests of Europe had, had disappeared. 
right? And that goes again to that issue about marine science and our, you know, we often forget how major these things are because it seems to be in the ocean and, and, and not in our faces. Now we know that this is driven by changes in sea temperature um, for a whole series of reasons, a lot of experimental work, uh, but the, um, the um, proof in the pudding, if you like, the eating, uh, was the fact that if you measure uh, thermal anomalies from satellites, you can predict what's going to happen in terms of bleaching. So when you have a one degree temperature rise along the, above the long-term summer maxima, um, reefs will bleach. And if it's two degrees for six weeks or longer, you start to get severe bleaching like the one I showed you. And if you get beyond that, three degrees for you know, eight weeks or so, you start to see mass mortality events where 95% of the corals will die in an area. And that's happened uh, most recently uh, in the Caribbean. There's some suggestion that the last very hot uh, period in Southeast Asia is going to see a similar mortality. So you see these sort of, and so this is, you know, the fact is that when you don't see these anomalies, you don't see bleaching and so on, really locks it down. Well, it also gives us a way of saying, well, what's going to happen to reefs in the future if this continues? And this is a study that I did uh, quite a long time ago now, uh, when I had hair. Um, and, uh, don't laugh, I still have hair, don't I? <laughs> And, and this is essentially um, taking the threshold at which we know corals will bleach and comparing that to what the climate models will tell us is going to happen to a sea temperature. And in this particular case, looked at Tahiti, Phuket and Thailand and Jamaica. And uh, what you see here is a, a model uh, that's um, something called ECAM4, which has been used by the EU for a lot of climate projections. Axel Timmerman was one of the people who helped me do this. Um, when you compare, you know, this is going from 1860 to 2100, you've got the interannual variability. This thing also seems to trap things like ENSO and so on. And when you see that, the uh, temperatures go above that known to cause bleaching today. And in the case of some places like Thailand and Jamaica, it goes well above the winter temperatures. Winter temperatures go well above the temperature that we know corals uh, bleach at. And we know that if you get things like this, you'll have mass mortality events. And so it isn't a big leap of logic here to say, well, if that happens and we don't have some sort of miraculous, you know, rapid evolution or so on, we won't have any corals. So um, looks a bit grim. Of course, the other impact on corals is through ocean acidification. And uh, if you look at this from a laboratory point of view, um, and, and this is uh, really from a study done by Klepas and Langdon where they pulled together all of the uh, studies of corals uh, and they um, uh, looked at those cases of a doubling of CO2 or adjusted the figures to a doubling of CO2, you basically uh, can say that if you double CO2, you get uh, conditions in which the carbonate ion concentration has dropped enough such that you lose about 15 to 45% of the calcification rate. So corals still calcify, but they're doing it at a slower rate. And you might say, well, that's not going to really do anything much, is it? Well, the unfortunate thing is it's the carbonate balance on reefs that really counts. And uh, so if you ask the question about how much coral is laid down and how much is removed, it's something like this. So calcification provides, um, you know, 10 units and nine units 
are removed by biological and physical erosion. So it's a very dynamic place. A lot more calcium carbonate is going into a reef than actually stays in the end on a reef. Now, if you then say, and, and this goes from reef drilling exercises and, and erosion, and I'm aware that um, this ratio differs from place to place, but generally you've got a lot more calcification going on uh, than stays on a reef. So if you then uh, take away, you know, 15 or 20 percent of that calcification rate, you can see how you can get a negative uh, carbonate balance. Now this is an area of active research right now to try and see whether this is happening. But there are reports from places like the Red Sea, for example, where um, it looks like they have a negative carbonate balance uh, developing that you're now starting to see impacts on the ability of corals to uh, provide calcium carbonate that are now falling behind the rate of erosion and so on. Now, interestingly, if you uh, look at the predictions of where corals are found and so on, and you look at this in relationship to that aragonite saturation, remember that's the ease at which you can precipitate a crystal of calcium carbonate in the aragonite form. Uh, you get plots like this one, which was uh, done by Long Sao and Ken Caldera at Stanford University. And this was in a paper uh, in Science that we pulled together a lot of the information on reefs. And so what you see here is that um, experimentally, and a lot of um, information on that, that uh, carbonate reefs don't seem to exist in waters below about 3.3 in terms of the aragonite saturation. And so you look at that and you see the pink dots, which are where you find carbonate uh, reef systems, that largely they're falling within the blue area. Now, if you then increase the CO2 concentration, so we're at about 380 parts per million today, and you increase that to 450, this is what happens to the aragonite saturation. And so it contracts, and you can see already that lots of pink dots, including Australia's Great Barrier Reef, start to fall outside the... Um, aragonite saturation required uh, to keep um, carbonate reefs in existence. And of course you go to 500, it contracts even further and by about 600 you don't really have any water like that we have today uh, which can um, uh, support carbonate reefs. Now, one of the questions came up, I'm known as very a gloomy sort of fellow, um, and lots of people like to say, don't be so gloomy, there's an answer. And one of the answers was, that the positive effect of heating up corals would be that they would grow faster, and that's certainly the case under some, uh, uh, some temperatures, might counter the effect. So the slowing of growth because of ocean acidification would be countered by the fact that corals would be in warmer waters, obviously below the bleaching threshold, but warmer so they were growing faster. So we've done experiments, and I'll just quickly show you one of those experiments in which we looked at the effect of increasing sea temperature and increasing uh, the amount of CO2. And then had a look at, and this is on a really hard place, this is a really tough place to work as you can see. Um, that's Heron Island. Uh, that's my outdoor lab. Um, and those little basins are flow through aquaria in which we've controlled the CO2 content and the temperature. And so we've put various organisms in those, looked at it over eight weeks. And the three organisms we looked at is a common um, reef-building calcareous algae. I haven't told you about these guys, but they're like the glue of a reef. They glue the fragments of corals together. A branchy coral and a, and, and a uh, massive coral. And then we just simply looked at uh, three different states, three different uh, amounts of CO2 measured here by pH, and then two temperatures, so the gray and the black bars 
Uh, that's a cooler temperature, that's a warmer temperature. And what we saw was that there, were, there was a separate and very distinct effect of ocean acidification on things like calcification, that was what we expected. We didn't see any counteraction, in fact temperature looked like it made it worse. And if you looked at things like primary productivity, you could see in some cases increasing the temperature had um, a very negative effect, in fact these things started to lose mass. One of the most interesting, I think, and important uh, observations was that increasing the acidity of the ocean lowered the threshold for bleaching. So you got bleaching at a lower temperature if they were in an acidified circumstance. So when you look at that uh, with respect to that model that I had before, which is there's the climate data, there's the threshold, uh, it's likely uh, in addition to the effects on growth and so on that acidified uh, conditions may um, reduce the threshold for bleaching. So no good news. Of course you could say that that's all laboratory stuff and some people who are field uh, experiments that they would say well until you've tried it on a living reef then you don't know the answer. So we tried to do this in fact um, a couple of months ago we started an experiment called the free ocean carbon enrichment experiment in which we have a permit to uh, put high CO2 water across a living coral reef. We're also going to try and heat it up at uh, a later stage in the project. And um, this, is not to, this is just simply to say don't try this at home or, or at all uh, because this thing which is our control unit was wired up to a huge number of replicate sort of areas that are being uh, polluted with CO2 um, is then connected to the lab and it's half a million dollars of real headache. But we're trying to answer that question. Now the early evidence from this experiment is showing that it's pretty similar to what you're seeing in the lab. So we're getting to a point now where we know that there's a very negative impact of, of both um, of, of, of uh, CO2 in terms of the effect on ocean acidification. There's been a very important study published at the beginning of last year in which uh, scientists drilled into these really long-lived corals, this, this coral called parietes. They can often be as big as this lecture theatre in size. They grow at one centimetre per year. And essentially what, what you've got there is a record going back several hundred years of, of uh, you know, um, if you look at isotopes you can get sea temperature and so on. One of the things you can get from that is a, a measure of, of calcification over time. And what these guys did, this is at the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences, Glenn Diath and co-workers, uh, all of these little dots here um, represent the sites at which 328 cores were drilled and what they saw was a consistent decrease in calcification since 1990. So you've got here uh, another form of field um, ratification of essentially what we've been finding in the lab and so on. Now we don't know whether this is due to temperature or um, acidification, but that's a pretty worrying 15% decline in calcification uh, that doesn't appear anywhere else in the record and the records go back 400 years. And so you've got a situation where uh, I think we now um, have more than a smoking gun in terms of what we're seeing that would explain the decrease in coral cover over time. So you get to this sort of point where you say, well, what does the future hold? Um, and these are three pictures that appeared in the science paper up there. Uh, in which uh, the story is told. Um, if you take today where we're about a degree warmer than the pre-industrial and we have 
100 parts per million more CO2. We've still got reefs like this one straight outside my lab, very rich places, lots of corals growing. Uh, but as I say, this is you know, slow degradation. If we go to 450 and plus two, uh, we'll see a situation in which most corals won't uh, be able to compete with a lot of other organisms. So we'll get reefs like this one here, which is a tussle of a few corals, a lot of seaweed, perhaps a lot of non-calcareous organisms uh, surviving. But if you go to 500 parts per million and beyond two degrees, uh, I think we'll see this sort of scenario. We'll see a scenario in which we don't have reef building corals anymore, we don't have the three-dimensional structure of the reef, and we don't have all the biodiversity and so on. One of the interesting things is that there are some analogies to these reefs today. And I'm going to show you another film in which in the eastern Pacific, um, where you've got a, an upwelling system that's putting high CO2 water, um, acid water essentially across uh, the equator, or acidified water. There are islands which are um, just north of, well, you've got Galapagos, you've got Cocos Island, um, and so on. And these islands are these volcanic seamounts that come up to the surface. And because they're five degrees north of the equator, you should see really rich carbonate reef systems. And in fact, what you see, see this. So these are the sort of islands. Um, I went there with Pete Mumby actually. It was meant to be a boondoggle, but actually turned out to be a, a, a great expedition. Um, this is underwater, and what you're seeing here are rocks. And in a minute, you'll see the corals, and that's a coral there. See that thing there and that? That's the extent of, 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 of corals. And they're very low diversity here. When you look at the fish fauna, there's uh, a single species of parrotfish, whereas what you see in many other places, like Komodo in Indonesia, which is essentially five degrees south of the equator, so it's in the same sort of band, you see this. Now, Cocos Island is warm, 24 to 28 degrees Celsius. Um, it's got lots of sunlight. Uh, it should have a really healthy coral reef ecosystem. And, of course, the question is, will Cocos Island-type reefs spread over this region as you see the contraction of, of uh, waters that uh, sponsor ca calcium carbonate. And of course that is an interesting question because you might say that those reefs in Cocos Island still work, they're still productive and so on, it's just that we have to get used to the fact that we won't have beautiful fish and corals to swim amongst. Um, and I think that question's uh, hard to answer right now, uh, but it's certainly one that uh, it's worth looking at. So, all right, so one of the questions is um, are we approaching a point of no return in terms of the oceans? So, we've seen so far that there are big changes, there's a number of themes going on. This is happening incredibly fast. Uh, things like coral reefs are slipping away and so on. But the question is, is there some sort of limit that we now need to be aiming for because going beyond it will be too dangerous? And of course, that will then lead me to whether it's possible and so on. So um, the definition of, of dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system is at the base of the original convention for the, uh, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. 
And so uh, taking those sort of definitions, it is quite easy to argue, especially with the disruption we're seeing now to things like um, the water regime, and we're seeing terrific floods in some places and heat waves that are, uh, you know, 100 year, 1,000 year events that are now occurring on a regular basis. It's easy to argue that 450 parts per million CO2 and a plus two degrees above the pre-industrial uh, average global temperatures uh, represents a point at which we will go to an unmanageable situation. I mean, climate is, is already dangerous, I think. Uh, you can argue from the point of view of dangerous interference and the loss of ecosystems, which is in the framework convention, that we already have gone way beyond uh, a safe point with respect to, to climate change. The question is, when do we get to a point when it's unmanageable, right? And that, I think, is this uh, number here. Now, um, is it physically possible to constrain CO2? I'm going to ask three questions. The first is, is it physically possible? Is it technically possible? And then is it politically possible? And I think those are the three sorts of steps that we need to get beyond. Now, physically possible to constrain CO2 to 450, there is a number of modelling studies. The one that I really like is the one done by Malta Meinshausen at the Potsdam Institute for Climate, Adaptation, Climate Change Adaptation Research. And this is where you look at a, a large number of models, you come up with probabilities uh, based on emission scenarios for how uh, you could control the climate. And this one here, uh, which they've uh, got in this uh, paper in Nature in 2009, um, essentially has a scenario where there's a 50% chance of exceeding 2 degrees Celsius. And you might say, well, that's acceptable odds. Mind you, I'm not sure I'd get into a car that had a 50% chance of crashing. But that's another question. So you take that and you say, well, how, how would you achieve that? And the answer is, we have 1,000 gigatons of carbon dioxide to expend over the next 50 years, from 2020 to 2050. And you could say, well, you know, what's that going to mean? Well, we, we at the moment uh, put into the atmosphere something like 30 to 40 gigatons of carbon, so you can do the math. It basically means that we have to be at zero by 2050, so there has to be a fairly steep curve starting today in terms of getting rid of that. And so there have been modelling studies that go like this, where the later you start that downward push on CO2 emissions, uh, the steeper the curve is. Right, so you've got the 2011 curve here that means that if you start to uh, decline at around the average rate of about 3.7% per year, but if you leave it until 2050, you'll have to up that to 5.3%, and if you leave it to 2020, uh, you'll have to do it at 9%. And of course, that then makes it um, a much greater technical challenge. Now, is this technically challenging? Well, there's a number of very interesting groups now that are putting together energy plans. And one of those that uh, was put together by the University of Melbourne for our country, um, University of Melbourne uh, Institute for Energy, uh, is this one here. And it's actually worth having a look at this because it just goes, okay, let's not dream about new technology. Let's just take the technology off the shelf and let's apply it as if we had the budget and the political will to put this you know, into play. And what they find out is, and it's a, it's a fantastic read, it's a really, you know, it's worth doing, um, is at the end of the day it's going to cost $8 per household per week in Australia to uh, take our economy to zero carbon in 10 years. Now, 
Uh, for me, that's just probably avoiding uh, that bottle of wine. You know, once a week I have a wine-free week. Uh, for others, it might be a slab of beer. Who knows? But the cost here relative to what it means for the planet and the kids and so on, you have to argue that $8 per week per household is not a bad one. Of course, you'd have to index it to rich people and poor people and so on. But actually, at the end of the day, it's not a shocking cost, is it? And that goes in and it's very carefully costed. So I think you can say that it's technically feasible. So why the hell aren't we getting on with it? And of course, this comes to the political question. And so to answer this question, I teamed up with a whole bunch of social scientists at the Institute for Social Science Research at the University of Queensland. And we surveyed 300 politicians, over 300 politicians, this is 301, um, at the federal, state, and local government levels. We polled anonymously for six months, and you can find the full result at this web address. And we asked them questions like, do you believe in climate change? You know, what do you think of the IPCC? And so on and so forth. And the results were really interesting. And I can't really go through all of them, but I'll give you two gems. We asked, where do you go? You know, uh, you know who do you trust on the issue of climate change? And there was questions like, well, do you trust uh, uh, scientists to a great deal, to some extent, or not at all? And it fell along party grounds. So with Green and Labor, and, and I'm not going to tell you the way I vote, uh, to Green and, and Labor MPs and, and, you know, all the way from council uh, leaders and so on, um, they will go to scientists largely to get their, their climate advice. But here we have the Liberal National Party where, you know, over 50% will not go to scientists in the first instance. Now, the second really interesting point was we asked what average global temperature do you think is safe for the planet? And, um, oh, and I should say, <laughs> I don't know whether you heard about this guy. We have a hung parliament right now. We'll probably go down the British model soon with a minority something or other. Uh, but the leader of the current opposition who could be the prime minister in the next few days uh, is quoted as saying climate change is absolute crap. So I think that's consistent with that, and I'll leave it there, and as I say, I'm apolitical. Um, the next question was, what's dangerous climate change? Um, is it an increase in global temperature of one to two, three to four, five to six, seven to eight? What's alarming here is that 7% um, of our leaders think that going to five to six degrees above the pre-industrial is safe, and that 30% of them think that uh, three to four degrees is fine. So you've really got an interesting situation here, and of course it does go down party lines to some extent, but there's an awful lot of politicians that are thinking that three to four degrees Celsius is okay. Now, if you take the IPCC fourth assessment report and then you take the Copenhagen consensus and all of those documents, the overriding message from scientists is that, that one to two degrees Celsius is manageable, that anything beyond that, and they call it the guardrail, is going to be extremely tough. There are very few scientists saying that with credibility that it's okay to go to three to four or beyond that. So there's something really interesting happening here. Something about science either not being communicated properly or some sort of deliberate political process that's avoiding looking at the facts of the matter. And I think this is, of course, the stumbling block. This is why we're not making progress, and I don't say anything I don't think that you already know. 
So to conclude, I, I think we can say that the ocean is changing at a speed which is largely unprecedented in, and it's unprecedented also in scale. That we're having major changes in marine ecosystems which ultimately uh, have implications for humans, whether they're coastal Indonesians or they're fishing companies or uh, it's the oxygen we breathe. And of course, I think that these things are clearly dangerous in their implications and what they mean and also in the uh, strict definition of the UNFCC. I believe that this concentration of CO2, um, that uh, we have to constrain it below 450, responding to this physically and technically is feasible, but whether or not we have the political will is still to be determined. And I'm gonna leave you with this wonderful image just to remind you of our beautiful planet, which is so different that there's not one in 100,000 other other planets. Well, that's an amazing number. And it'd be awful for us to be the ones that spoiled the party. Thank you very much.